Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. Okay, so starting in Luke chapter 9. So what we have in our gospel reading for today is in Luke chapter 13. And so starting in chapter 9, Jesus starts on this journey to Jerusalem. And so we're into this journey part of the way. And and as we're on this journey, someone asks the question found for us in verse 23. And let me just read that question for you. It says, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Lord, will those who are saved be few? Now, we don't know if it was a Pharisee who asked him that or if it was uh, just a person in the crowd or if it was one of the disciples. It just doesn't tell us. Just says they're on this journey, and this question, someone asks this question. And, you know, a lot of times what happens in life is, is we can ask these theoretical questions, you know, like, well, what about this, or, or what about that? And Jesus, when he hears this question, he doesn't just leave it at some distant or abstract or theoretical stance. He actually takes it, and he works to make it personal. Okay? So what I would like you to think about today isn't just, what about those things out there? Kind of like when Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? And they gave all those answers, right? And then he goes and he tightens it down and he says, but who do you say that I am? And that's what I want to go with you today is to ask that question. Now, when I first saw this, it made me think of something I learned in in CPE, Clinical Pastoral Education, when I was in St. Louis. And it says, there's a difference between a social visit and a pastoral visit, okay? And I have to confess that, that being a, a social visit is far easier. And so when I, when I come and see you sometimes in your home or visit with you in other places, it feels a whole lot more like a social visit than a pastoral visit. And it doesn't make a pastoral visit bad, but listen to the difference between There's ten little items, so I'll share them with you. It goes like this. A social conversation concentrates on external subjects, the weather, world events, local events, where a pastoral conversation concentrates on the person, especially any spiritual and emotional concerns and inner dynamics. If I came to you and talked about the weather and what things are happening in other cities, you'd be much more comfortable than if I came and said, what's going on inside of you? That's not always so easy to address, is it? That's why we like to just push it back out and let's talk about the weather. Isn't it really hot? You'd much rather have the external heat than for me to turn up the heat. Social conversation, maintaining a congenial atmosphere. Let's just smile at each other. Or a pastoral conversation, listens for tension areas. Social conversation, comfort it through avoiding. That's one of my favorites. Let's just not talk about that. That sounds like it's going to cause some problems. Let's not talk about it. Or comfort through facing with a pastoral visit. Here's an issue. How about we look at it? Number four, sharing stories and experiences. This is what happened to me when I was 12, which is fine. Or sharing stories and experiences plus helping the person to share himself or herself. You see, what we're doing is we're working to make it personal. It's not just talking about all those things out there. It's talking about what's happening here and how does Jesus impact my life. Next one. 
being pleasant and positive or being understanding and empathic. What should be, that happens every once in a while, doesn't it? We get together and we say, this is how it should be. This is what should be going on in our nation, in our church, in our families. Okay? But a pastoral visit focuses on what is and what can be as we let God direct us. Seven, generalizing, universalizing what they say, what people do. That's what, Lord, will there only be a, a few that are saved? Or specific, what do you and I think? What do you and I feel? Number eight, being helpful by entertaining or being helpful by intimate sharing. Nine, religion. Differences between churches, services, ministers. What's the difference between the LCMS and the ELCA and the Wisconsin Synod and the Presbyterians and the Baptists and the Catholics? Let's just keep it out there. Or, pastoral visit focuses on God and my or your relationship with God through Jesus. And then social conversation concentrates on people in general. Well, a pastoral visit focuses on significant relationships of the person. I bet there are some times when I stop by, you'd much rather have a social visit than a pastoral one. And there are some times, not all the time, but there are some times when I'd rather just have a social visit too than a pastoral one. Today, we want to think about making it personal. And secondly, we want to think about how we make it personal. And we're going to, so making it personal, first off, is am I willing to go the way of saying not just who do people say that Jesus is, but who do I say Jesus is, and how does that impact my life? We're going to touch on that again, hopefully, at the very end. But now I want to ask the question, how do we make it personal? And for this, I want to, I want to think about Dr. Robert Kolb, one of the one of the best professors at the seminary in St. Louis where I went, and Dr. Robert Kolb, he would ask this one question, and he would say, so how would you answer this? Is abortion wrong? And he said, the right answer is, why do you want to know? Okay? Because if the person comes to you and says, I'm considering doing this, okay, then what you do is you would say, well, let's look at what Scripture has to say, and we can look at and see this is a life that's not your life to do something with. It's actually God's. It's a person, and we don't want to put that person to death. But if you're a person who's had an abortion five years ago, ten years ago, three months ago, whatever it might be, and you're living under the weight and the condemnation of feeling guilty for doing that act, then I don't need to look at you and say, well, that's wrong, you lousy person. I need to say, oh, there is grace for every sin. And speak a word of forgiveness and hope to the person. How? You see, is abortion wrong? That's just out there. But why do you ask that question? What would you like to know? What's going on behind that you would even ask that question that leads us to answer it? Because we can look at that topic from all sorts of different angles, but from God's word, it's clear. It's clear in two ways. It's a forgivable sin. And it's not what God would desire. How? 
how will we make it personal? How will we live into this? Making sense so far? Okay. I touched on a touchy subject, didn't I? I usually work by avoiding all those. But God's word is clear. What I'd like you to think about is the door. Now, in John chapter 10, Jesus describes himself as the shepherd among the sheep and also as the door, the gateway through which we can enter. And in this passage that we looked at in Luke chapter 13, verses 22 through 30, it talks about the door. And it says, in order to go in, you've got to go through the door. And the door has three aspects or characteristics. First, it's narrow. Second, it's one that gets knocked on. And third, it's a door that leads into a feast. Okay? So just think with me again. It's narrow. It's one that we knock upon. And it's one that leads to a feast. First, it's a narrow door. Now, when you think about this, think for just a moment. It says that we have to strive to enter through the narrow gate. We have to put effort into, into entering through the narrow gate. Okay? So usually when you think of striving to do something, you're thinking about all the effort you're going to put into it. Right? And so if it's about the effort you put into it and about being good enough for God, okay, then it would have to say something like a um, non-existent door. Because there wouldn't be a door for us. It would be kind of like a camel going through the eye of a needle. To which you would all say, well, that's impossible, right? And if we thought about walking with God in a way that's totally good enough for God, all of us start as sinners. And therefore, there would be how much hope for us? Did I lose you during the sermon so far? No, you're all okay? Okay. Zero, right? Zero. Zero hope. Isn't it great? Zero hope. That little baby that's not looking at me right now that Heather has would have zero hope. That's pretty harsh to say, isn't it? It's also true. Because that little baby is born sinful. Heather and I, after church today, are going to talk about baptizing. Why would we have to baptize a baby if it wasn't sinful? Right? Okay, so no hope. And yet, so it's not about us getting our act together and doing well enough. What it's about is striving to actually repent. I went into Whataburger early last week. Came up to the front and said, I'd like a number two. And she said, would you like cheese on it? And I said, no. And she said, well, it'd be nine-something. I was like, $9? It's never been that much before. You're raising your rates or what's going on? She said, well, and then I got the receipt and said, oh, with cheese. I said, no, I didn't want any cheese. No, you said you wanted cheese. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I'm getting older, and I don't remember near as well, but I never say I want cheese. <laughs> Some of us, now this is a silly little thing, right? Okay. But how many of us on silly or not so little silly things, because I didn't want to say I was wrong. I'm like, I never say I want cheese. I was right. And she's on the other side. She's probably, you know, a third of my age or less. She's like, no, you said you wanted cheese. I'm like, well, she's young, and she probably heard it. 
How many of us really struggle to own our sins? How many of us really struggle to say, I was wrong. Dear God, please change the way I'm thinking so I can see life your way. Do you ever struggle with that? Do you ever have to strive in order to say, that was wrong, that was me? And if you say, I never struggle with that, can I talk to your spouse or someone in your family or someone who knows you fairly well? Because don't we all tend to have those moments at Whataburger where like, I know I didn't say yes. Do you ever have those moments? In those moments, we need to recognize that the striving is to actually own our sin. And then we actually have to strive to do the next part. You know what the next part is? I've told you this so many times, you're sick of hearing it. But I still think I have to say it. The second part is striving to actually believe that what he says about us is true. That we are his precious, forgiven, beloved sons and daughters made right with him because of what he has done. Remember the narrow door is the door. How, will there only be a few that are saved? How does salvation happen? Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 says that you shall name him Jesus, for he has come to do what? Save his people from their sins. Just think of how powerful that would have been. That was happening amidst a time when Jerusalem, when Israel was under Roman rule. And whenever we're under Roman rule, Whenever we're under someone else's rule and oppression, we're not worried about our sins. We're worried about theirs. And so Jesus comes, and what's announced about him is he's going to save his people from their sins, not from the lousy people that surround him. And remember what it says that Jesus spoke from the cross? It's really one word, but we translate it with three words. It is finished. So Jesus accomplished our salvation for us. So it's not about us striving to be good enough. And you know, I guess I keep bringing it up because I keep struggling with it. I had a couple of days this last week where I was really, really down on myself. Do you ever find that's true for you? Yeah, you just get really, really down on yourself because we forget that it's a narrow door. Because it's only those who will be humble enough to receive God's gift of repentance and live in his wonderful grace. So it's not about how great you are, what changes you've made, but how great he is. We sang that thing not too many weeks ago. How great thou art, and that thou is not you or me. Next, it talks about knocking. And there's so many cool things in here. Knocking. So... We knock on the door, or they knock, and they say, let us in. And he says, I don't even know where you're from. I don't even know you. That's scary. When I first saw those, depart from me, all workers of wickedness. Ouch. I don't ever want to hear that. From God Almighty, depart from me. Those are scary words. What this is talking about is the timing. Okay? Do you know what it says in 2 Corinthians 6? It says, now is a day of salvation. Please don't wait until later when you feel like it. Okay? Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day for... Brody? Yes! Okay. Now is the day. Now is the day for you. It's not like, I hear a really interesting message today, but I don't really want to think about it or deal with it. No, now. 
Don't put it off. Consider and live in the grace of God now, today, continually. In a couple chapters earlier, in Luke 11, there's a story about a man who has a guest coming to him late at night, and he doesn't have anything to serve him, and hospitality is a big deal. And so he goes to another house, and he knocks on that door to get what he needs, and he wakes him up, and the door is locked. It's shut, but the guy gets up because of the need. What we do is, it's, it, what's so interesting in there, in Luke 13, it says you know, that people were striving but weren't let in. What we want to do is strive now, knock on that door now, asking, let us have the gifts. And he will give them to us. That other man, even though the door was locked, he brought him out. Luke chapter 12 tells the story about some servants. And I don't think you're going to remember this one. Not that you're bad or anything, but it's kind of one of the stories that we don't hear a lot. Listen to this. Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Timing. Be ready. And notice that in the first story from Luke 11 and the story from Luke 12, that God is the one who serves. He's the one that we go to and say, would you please give me what I need so I can serve my person who's come to me in need. This one, the Son of Man, God is coming, and they open the door to him. We need to be ready at the door to open, to let God come in to serve us. That's what he does here at the table, changing our lives so that we might then respond as we make it personal and live these new lives before him. Finally, the door is small, narrow, It's one upon whom we knock. And lastly, it's the door to the feast. And Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 through 9, says it so beautifully. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Let's rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The first will be last. Some of the first will be last and some of the last will be first. You know, those Pharisees and even other people They'd be looking around saying, oh, those who have wealth, they're the chosen ones of God. Oh, look, those who are acting rightly, they're the ones that are going to be in the kingdom of God enjoying that feast. And Jesus says to them in Matthew 21 that the tax collectors and the prostitutes are getting into the kingdom of God before them. Oh, whoa. I wonder what... 
I wonder who in your mind isn't worthy of being with Jesus. And I wonder who might be getting in there ahead of others. We ever judgmental of people? And the whole congregation jumps up and says, yes, I am. Right? We all get that way, and we're like, no, they don't deserve it. They're not. And so it's like, whoa, there's some, a problem. Do we want to enjoy that feast, and do we want the world around us to enjoy that feast with us? That's my hope. So I want to read to you a little section from D.A. Carson's book about, it's called Basics for Believers. And it says this, because again, when we are those who have received God's grace entering the narrow door, as those who are letting God serve us, as those who are looking forward to the feast to come, what does this, how does this impact us? As we make it personal, how does it impact you and me? And he writes this. I would like to buy about $3 worth of the gospel, please. Not too much, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, and contemplate missionary service in some alien culture. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to be cherished by some nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I don't want to love people from other races. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving too greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of the gospel, please. Of course, none of us is so crass as to put it that way, but most of us have felt the temptation to opt for a domesticated version of the gospel. In some ways, this temptation is perennial but perhaps it is especially strong today. Owing to a number of developments in the Western world, first, pressure, from building, pressure has been building from the process of secularization. Secularization does not refer to some social impetus driving us toward the abolition of religion. Rather, secularization refers to the processes that squeeze religion to the periphery of life. The result is not that we abandon religion or banish the gospel, Rather, religion is marginalized and privatized, and the gospel is rendered unimportant. I know that that Brody is done, and we're about done too, right? (laughs) But I just wanted you to hear that last little part. I want $3 of the gospel because I don't want it to be the main thing. Remember last week when Jake was here and he spoke about keeping the main thing the main thing? How often times do we let the main thing become the periphery? Where we don't make Jesus central. We don't make the gospel and the changes that he makes in our lives central. But it just gets to be on the outside. Because I think more and more when you make it personal, when, it, when other things kind of fade out, and it's all about you and your walk with Jesus, I wonder how that doesn't, how that doesn't kind of work its way in to all of our conversations doesn't mean you force the Bible into every single conversation. It just means you're looking for the opportunity to talk about Jesus. Does he give us hope? Yes. Is he the one that's our everything that we adore? 
Lord, does he get pushed to the periphery? And finally, it's three simple examples. What does it mean to make it personal? How about the woman caught in adultery? And when Jesus comes and keeps her from being murdered, do you think she took it personal? The woman at the well, when Jesus comes and he speaks with her and changes her life, do you think she took it personal? And St. Paul, who was Saul, the persecutor of the church, and he said everything that he valued and said was made his life important at the beginning now is like, I never use this word, I like poop or crap, things like that. He called it dung. Dung, refuse. Do you think that impacted him personally? Do you want $3 of the gospel this morning or would you like the full meal deal? Amen.